Hello, and welcome to the Popcorn Isn't Real. I'm Leif Eric, and I'm here with my brother Torvald. Hello again. We're going to be talking about an awesome 90s horror called Event Horizon, and we're going to be talking about the first at least four films, possibly more, in the Hellraiser franchise. We've got such sights to show you. <laughs> oh, dude. <laughs> Is this episode going to be pleasure or pain? Hopefully pleasure for our viewers, maybe pain for us. <laughs> oh, this is going to be so fun. So we've got a lot to say about the entire Hellraiser series uh-huh. and also a lot to say about Event Horizon. I think your theory about Event Horizon is actually really cool. I didn't at first. I was just like, what? But yeah, having looked into it, I actually like it a lot. Maybe you could uh, tell us a bit about that theory. Yeah, so the originator of this theory is a Reddit user named Steve Rudinsky. He hypothesized that Event Horizon is actually a film in the Hellraiser universe. So a little bit of background on just both of them real quick. Event Horizon is a story about these people going into space to find a lost ship called the Event Horizon. And when they get to it, they find out that its weird black hole gravity drive has actually punched a hole into another hell-like dimension. And... The Hellraiser franchise is all about a box that opens a portal to a hell-like dimension. So Right, and there's a guy named Pinhead inside. Yeah, he's the uh, iconic uh, bad guy from that franchise. Yeah. I mean, just a little more information. Event Horizon, a 1997 film written and directed by Paul W.S. Anderson, who went on to do such great franchises as the entire Resident Evil series, uh, the film series, of course, and also Alien vs. Predator. Dude, dude, you're leaving out his magnum opus, Mortal Kombat, widely considered to be the first good video game movie adaptation. Right? Yeah, like, and still probably the best. I, I think it is the best. I, <laughs> I think both of us would agree on that. And he did the remake of Death Race 2000, oh, which was really that. good, too. I've got to watch that. So he's he's made good movies. I mean, well, <laughs> some might <laughs> say, you know, pleasure for some, pain for others. <laughs> right. So Clive Barker wrote and directed the first Hellraiser. He wrote uh, an original story called The Hellbound Heart, which was adapted by him into Hellraiser. Uh, and uh, the studio didn't like the name The Hellbound Heart because they thought it sounded like a romance. Yeah. Okay. They, I mean, that's. It kind of does. They eventually settled <laughs> like, on Hellraiser. Yeah, it kind of does. <laughs> uh, Hellraiser 2 Hellbound, which uh, I think was originally just going to be called Hellbound, was written by, like the screenplay was written by Peter Atkins, directed by Tony Randall. But Clive Barker had a big hand in the story, and he was also a producer on Hellraiser 2 Hellbound. I mean, one thing I will say about Hellraiser 1, it is very strange, but it's definitely a horror film. Right, dude. Like, Hellraiser one, it was it was good. I liked it. Yeah. I mean, it was it was weird, dude. No, I've never seen a movie quite like that. And uh, two is, I think, in many ways more strange. And rather than just a straight horror, it's a like a bizarre horror fantasy kind of thing. Yeah, um, it kind of reminds me of saying. like other eighties films, Return like The Labyrinth. <laughs> yeah, Return to Oz kind of things. <laughs> Reminded me of Return to Oz. <laughs> yeah, because there's two girls like running away. Yeah, running around in like an insane asylum. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, and three is uh, Hellraiser. Three is in the hood. So interestingly enough, Hellraiser quickly went the route of many other long-running horror series where you have them go to the hood. 
or some sort of urban setting. Like Leprechaun goes to the hood and then Jason takes Manhattan. Um, yeah, and then Predator the, 2 in the hood. Right, exactly. And then the next logical step is to go to space. Like Leprechaun goes to space. Jason goes to space. Predator. Predators always go to space. <laughs> yeah, predators from space. And Hellraiser 4 Bloodlines also goes to space. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Well, one thing I do think is interesting about the original Hellraiser is like it caught on in the mainstream, right? Like it was successful. And I think yeah. watching it now, I don't quite understand why, even though I like it, but a lot of the movies I like from the 80s aren't successful or and don't well, have mainstream appeal, you know? I, as long as I can remember, I've known Hellraiser, but I've never seen it <laughs> until literally, you know, just a, exactly. a few days ago while I was researching for this. But I know the word Hellraiser. I know Pinhead. Yeah. I know what he looks like. Right. I know he's got a puzzle box. Until I watched it, I assumed that this movie was about people solve this puzzle box and then Pinhead comes and like kills them. Right. Yeah. Like that, that was it. I thought it was like a simple slasher thing. Like yeah. Pinhead's basically Jason. And what triggers his appearance is the puzzle box. That's 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 what I thought. But that is definitely not what the first Absolutely movie was. Absolutely not. <laughs> oh, so I wanted to drop a few vocabulary words here. Um, we're going to talk about cenobites. <laughs> uh, a cenobite is a demon, right? Like Pinhead, sure. he is a cenobite. Sure, they're, they're demons that live in hell. They're and sadomasochistic by... people who were have been turned into demons that are usually they usually look like they were tortured in some way and their torture implements are part of their body now. And they can be summoned by the puzzle box, which leads me to my next vocabulary word. The puzzle boxes in Hellraiser are known as, it's called a lament configuration. The, the terms are used interchangeably, but I'm going to go with the one that we see in the series and interact with most often is called the lament configuration. All the other yes. ones are generically referred to as Le Marchand's boxes. Because Lamarchand right. was the guy who created he them. created the model and created the first box. Um, I was just going to say there's even another kind of puzzle box in this universe, which is called an Elysium configuration. Yes. <laughs> and that is the perfected puzzle box, which gets rid of demons instead of bringing them to you, right. <laughs> I guess. It's interesting because now that we have these vocabulary words, Hellraiser 1 on its surface seems to be a movie that has Cenobites, evil demons that come when you call them using this lament configuration. Yeah. It has both of those things in it. It's not about those things. No. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's not a movie about Cenobites or puzzle boxes. Yeah. This is a movie about Uncle Frank. <laughs> yeah. It's all about Uncle Frank coming back from the dead. He, I guess he committed suicide? Like, Did he know that the lament configuration would kill him? I don't believe he knew it would kill him. He certainly enjoyed it. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I mean, I think well, it's it's what he wanted. Like, I don't think he was surprised by it. Yeah. Like he, when he went to solve it, he did sit down like in an empty room on a cold stone floor, surrounded by candles. Yeah. <laughs> so well, one, I'm glad you brought up the question of who is the main character. It relates to what I was talking about about mainstream appeal. Like this movie, to me, seems like it would be a cult classic. But like the reason you know Pinhead. And I know Pinhead, even though we never watched the movie, is because he was like like Robocop. He was marketed to kids, right? Like there were Pinhead lunchboxes yeah, I mean, and stuff. All over. Right. Yeah. His mm -hmm. face was all over the place. Right. Similar, yep. like even Freddie and Jason were kind of marketed to kids too. Oh, um, yeah. And like <laughs> after Freddie and Jason, 
He is the most successful horror icon, I believe. The most recognizable, at least. Interestingly enough, he was going to be in Freddy vs. Jason, but they cut him out at the last oh, minute. That would have been, been so, so awesome. Cool. Instead of the ending they great, had, dude. which I actually liked the ending they had, it was going to have Freddy and Jason charging at each other for like one last battle and then hooks just come out of nowhere and pull them apart. And Finhead shows up and it's like, well, what do we have here? Or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been great. That would have been so fun that would have been awesome but they didn't solve a puzzle box no so. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway unlike those other horror franchises you can't point to any one movie in the series that is like unarguably good and i hate to use that word because i like the first and even the second one but like they all have some pretty big flaws like their stories are just kind of all over the place and they don't make a lot of sense i think part of the reason that it got this iconic appeal as we talked about, Pinhead is really iconic. But second of all, I think it's because the movie, it's because the movie is sort of flawed in its story. You cannot predict where it's going. Like when I no. first watched Hellraiser, like I, I have no idea. Like it, you, you had said uh, it, it is, it's a little bit like the mummy in some ways, you know, like, yeah. so the stepmother Julia is like, you know, trying to bring her boyfriend Frank <laughs> back to life by killing people and feeding their blood to him. Like why establish all this backstory behind the, the lament configuration and the Cenobites <laughs> and their hell world. If the movie's not even going to be about that. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I think it's literally just about Frank coming back to life and killing people at, using Julia. Right. Right. And some Cenobites appear every once in a while. <laughs> no, not no. even a, They never appear until the very, very, very end. <laughs> well, I think this has to do with Clive Barker himself, because before Hellraiser, a story of his was adapted into a film, and I think it was it was Rawhead Rex, which I've seen, but I just barely remember it, and I don't think it was very good. Anyway, Clive Barker hated it. It sure sounds horrible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Rawhead Rex. Um, Clive Barker hated it, and so he wanted to direct so that that wouldn't happen again. And I think one of the things that really annoyed him was just like in films a lot of this extra stuff that are in stories gets removed. And I think that's a way to explain just sort of the seemingly randomness of Hellraiser is that he was taking all the random extra stuff like the backstory and, and all these different characters who have their own little stories, which kind of works in a little novella. But like when you put it in a film, it starts to feel like random. And in this case, worked to its favor because you're like, I have no idea where this is going, but it's horrifying. I actually read a, an article uh, where they did an interview with Clive Barker. Mm -hmm. And he had said specifically that with Hellraiser 1, what he wanted to do was to make the villains into characters. He wanted them to be monsters, but also to be characters, yeah. right? Like he said in too many movies, especially horror movies, you've got the villain who is a monster. That's it. And they never explore that character. He said he wanted to explore the monsters of this movie. And yeah. that's why he went into so depth, you know, exploring not only Uncle Frank, but also Julia and also the Cenobites, right? right? It wasn't just they show up to kill you. It was they show up to kill you because they love it. And it <laughs> like they think you love it. And <laughs> like, yeah. and it worked like it added yeah. layers to the movie that made it feel so complex and like real even though it was so absurd. So uh, with Uncle Frank in mind, one note I have about this movie is the, the phrase come to daddy <laughs> is used no less than six times <laughs> in this movie. And it is always oh. a threat. <laughs> so. oh. 
I mean, getting back to who the main character is of this movie, like, eventually we find out it's Kirstie, sort of, right? Except you could say it's Frank, but also Clive Barker, I think he even had this plan in the first one, but definitely by the time he got to the second movie, he thought Julia was going to yeah, be... Yeah, I was going to say, you could say she's the main right. character. Right. She was going to be the main character of the first one, and then she would be the main antagonist of the whole franchise. He was trying to create the first female horror icon. He wanted her to be like the female Freddy Krueger. And so that's why they bring her back. he accidentally created pinheaded <laughs> Freddy Krueger. <laughs> right. And it's just crazy that by the second movie, they knew Pinhead was popular enough that they wrote him a backstory. Because they're like, well, we need yeah. to include more of Pinhead. And yet, they didn't know... That, like, you don't kill him off with another Cenobite. Like, this was pre-Indominus yeah. Rex, like Jurassic World. You might want to explain that a bit for Right. <laughs> for so the Indominus Rex theory is something that it's taken the entertainment world a long time to figure out. People like the classic bad guy. And if you introduce a new cool bad guy who is just the old bad guy but newer and cooler... People hate that new bad guy and they just yeah. want to see the old bad guy kill that new bad guy, which is the one thing that Jurassic World really got right is that the T-Rex kills the Indominus Rex, or I mean, it fights it and yeah. wins, you know? The Indominus Rex actually got eaten by that uh, right, water yeah. But like water the T-Rex fought it and called. won and the Velociraptors together, you know? And that's yeah. what every... And those are the guys we love. Exactly. That's we what love Velociraptors every... and we love T-Rexes. We don't care about this stupid new Indominus yeah. Rex. Every Jurassic Park fan just wants to see the T-Rex take out another lame Rex, you know? But anyway, it's interesting that it took the entertainment world such a long time to figure this out because in like, I mean, just one example is like... Like shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. The new villain always comes in and beats up Spike, even though he's the fan favorite. And all we want to see is Spike beating up villains, right? Right. Part of the reason we liked Spike is because he's always getting beat up. He's like Angel, but he's a failure. (laughs) We love that. Yeah, that's true. But in Smallville, they would do it too with like the new bad guy comes in and like beats Lex Luthor or something like that. Uh, No. It's like, yeah, no (laughs) No one beats Lex Lex Luthor. Luthor. (laughs) Uh, That just makes my blood boil. Exactly. And so Smallville that's... Lex Luthor was perfection. He was <laughs> oh. the perfect Lex yeah. Luthor. No, he was great. Possibly the perfect villain. <laughs> Do you believe a Dude. man can fly? <laughs> People don't fly, Lex. <laughs> I did. Um, <laughs> wow. So they did not know this back in the 80s and it took them a long time to figure it out. So for whatever reason, even though they knew Pinhead was popular, they were like, let's bring in Cheese Grater Head and he'll kill Pinhead. <laughs> Just to give some some context to our listeners, what happened in this movie is there was an evil dude, like a, was he a surgeon? Dr. Chenard, I don't know exactly what he was. He worked with crazy he people. He was doing <laughs> surgery, but he seemed to be a psychologist. Like, <laughs> or a psychiatrist, yeah. He was doing brain well, surgery. <laughs> Hannibal Lecter was a surgeon who became a psychiatrist, so I don't know, maybe it's something yeah. like that. I kind of think he wasn't supposed to be doing that surgery. <laughs> Because later in the movie, when the Leviathan... So, the Leviathan is the god of the Cenobites. He's the god of that hell world. Yes. And it's always shining out these dark rays of light. They're not light because they're dark. (laughs) But if one of those dark rays shines on you, you remember all your past sins. And when that happened to this doctor, he remembered specifically operating on that lady and doing the brain operation. So, I thought maybe he wasn't even supposed to be there. Right. (laughs) Maybe he just picked up the tool and was like... Let me take over, guys. (laughs) I don't know. Right. 
<laughs> but um, so this doctor, he brought Julia back to life. Julia had died in the first movie. Uh-huh. Um, he brought her back to life, you know, with a ritual by spilling blood where she died. And then <laughs> not even a ritual. To, like you can do it by accident. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, they did do it by accident in the first one. And then they, they worked together to put skin back on her body. And then she took him with her to hell. And then in hell, he came in contact with the god of the Cenobites, which was the Leviathan. And the Leviathan turned him into a Cenobite. He turned into like a super Cenobite. And the Leviathan actually put this tentacle in his head and was either controlling him or giving him its power or something. And I think that's why he was able to kill all the other Cenobites. But with all that, apparently Clive Barker's goal was to build up Julia as the villain. But like, if you watch that movie, when did they do that? Well, I've got a question about that. So does she have magical sexual attraction powers? She seems to. She uses her sexual powers to lure guy after guy after guy to this house to get killed, right? Like, it's it, the movie doesn't work if she doesn't have right. this sexual so power to get So your theory there, right? is that Julia was magical before she ever even encountered, like, the box. Yeah, I think she was magical before she encountered Frank. I think that's why Frank fell in love with her at first sight, right? Yeah. <laughs> like... It doesn't make sense otherwise, because every guy she meets falls madly in love with her at first sight. It is true. (laughs) Well, and with that in mind, why wasn't she turned into a super Cenobite? But also it's confusing as to why Julia was taken by the Cenobites, at least in the first movie. Yeah. In later movies, we find out the Cenobites, once they're released, can kind of just take whoever they want. Yeah, they just do whatever (laughs) they want. (laughs) They're not really as bound by the box. The right. The movie first two movies, you, you kind of feel like they have rules, but they they don't really have rules. No. The, the entire protocol for who becomes a Cenobite and who doesn't and how to become a Cenobite is really confusing to me. <laughs> I don't understand it. The Cenobites come and take you to hell. You are either tortured there in one of those rooms in the labyrinth, or you are taken into the Leviathan itself like Dr. Chouinard is and turned into a Cenobite. Julia seems to have free access to the Leviathan. Yes. So, <laughs> so why wasn't something she a is special is going on with Julia. Maybe it's because she already had magical powers. <laughs> like that's we, <laughs> yeah, that's my only way of justifying it is that she was some other kind of demon, right? Like she was there already. She didn't need to become a Cenobite. But hold on, I have another question specifically about Julia that I think is pertinent here. So You say this movie, the purpose was to establish Julia as, like, the new bad guy. Mm -hmm. But, like, two-thirds of the way into this movie, Julia just randomly gets vacuumed up for no reason and leaves her skin behind, and we never see her again. (laughs) So what was going on with that? I was like, that was the most unceremonious end to what I thought was a really cool villain lady. I don't even know why she got vacuumed up. What the heck was happening there? Yeah. (laughs) And so I know it was Clive Barker's goal to make her into the next Freddy Krueger. But apparently, since he was just a producer on that movie, it wasn't necessarily everyone else's top priority. That's my only explanation for for as to why they did that. I would have loved for the stupid doctor Cenobite to like just trip and fall off a cliff and then her be the main bad guy. (laughs) Yeah. So I did a lot of research watching nine of the ten movies And I even read 
Hellraiser Omnibus Volumes 1 and 2, the comic book. Dang. Nice. Were they any good? Uh, I mean, okay. <laughs> they're okay. All right. <laughs> but they are, at least the ones I read, I believe were written by Clive Barker or at least informed by Clive Barker. Like he was involved. Let's, let's just define a few terms. So Cenobites are creatures that Clive Barker imagined them originally as they do not know the difference between pleasure and pain. Like they have gotten to a certain point where any sensual experience to them is pleasurable, including pain. And so that's why they're like angels to some, demons to others, because it's from their point of view, they are maybe angels. Yeah, (laughs) like they they, think this is great. They are absolutely (laughs) 100% demons to everyone. (laughs) They are not angels at all. From their point of view, they're going around handing out lollipops. (laughs) And some people don't like those lollipops, and they're just like, that's weird. <laughs> and then they keep handing out lollipops. Eat like, it anyway until you like anything it. anything wrong with what they're doing. In <laughs> fact, they think they're doing a service. <laughs> and so Clive Barker was actually, in the 70s, he was what's called a hustler. Which, hey, Torvald, what's a hustler? A hustler is somebody who socially engineers you to make decisions that you otherwise wouldn't have made, which benefit the hustler. And see, that is exactly what I would have said a hustler is. Turns out in England in the 70s, a hustler was a male prostitute. <laughs> oh dear. Oh, whoa. oh no. <laughs> was, you, you got me. I didn't see that coming. Um, yeah, I mean, it got well, me Clive too. Barker. <laughs> My man. You, wow. And so like living it up. <laughs> right. So he had this experience when he was younger and he became a writer and it helped him come up with the idea for Cenobites, like these strange creatures that do pleasure and pain and don't know the difference. It's interesting because for seemingly sensual creatures, they actually don't come off as sensual. They are very intellectual. No, they're right? serious. They're yeah, like they're... erudite. They're more like these erudite demons than they are like sensual I, succubi. I wouldn't call them all intellectual, like that big one, the big fat stupid right, one. Right. That one's not intellectual. Right, sure. But like <laughs> the most iconic one, Pinhead himself, he's like, he looks a little sadomasochistic, but when he talks, he seems like a very educated you know, reasonable guy. Yeah, reasonable. Well, I don't know. <laughs> In his own way. In my opinion, the best parts of the movies are when Pinhead is getting horny. <laughs> when he starts talking. And he's talking in, like you said, kind of an educated, r- respectable way. But he just throws <laughs> phrases in there like, you're looking ripe. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, just these weird things. that. Like, yeah. <laughs> and we got to give kudos to Doug Bradley as the actor who plays Pinhead. And he's, I, he's I really good. I love him as an actor. He's, he's so good. Good pinhead. He's so good. So a few more little just terms. Leviathan, as Torvald has already said, is the god of hell. Clive Barker originally imagined him to be more Lovecraftian, like a tentacle monster. But Tony Randall and Peter Atkins decided that they wanted it to be something that we'd never seen before. So they made Leviathan yeah. into a geometric shape. <laughs> now, I actually think that was a great idea because the scene doesn't look that great just because you can see that the labyrinth is like painted in but it's super like iconic and imposing like just to see this giant shape hovering above a creepy labyrinth like it's really good yeah i thought i thought it was a very cool like god for this world to just be something that incomprehensible yeah no, like it was at that point while watching that I was like, oh, I'm not meant to understand this series. <laughs> yeah. I get it. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm just along for the ride here. I can just relax. <laughs> 
as long as we're talking about it. it. It shines, you know, rays of blackness that make you remember all your sins, and it floats above the labyrinth, and it also continually calls out the Morse code for God in deep <laughs> foghorn blasts. <laughs> so if you watch that section, listen to it. Whenever the uh, whenever the Leviathan is in the picture, it's going. <laughs> like it's making these deep foghorn blasts and they're morse code for god uh-huh. <laughs> so i thought that's really sinister like something super cool and sinister that they included that no one will ever know yeah. <laughs> right like no one's gonna think oh this is morse code let me decode it that's very cool and it adds to that character that it's constantly calling out God, <laughs> over and over. Yeah. Like, what is it? Why is it doing that? <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's very cool. I like Leviathan. You got some more demon terms for us? Yeah. So, a group of Cenobites is called a gash. And oh, oh, wow. <laughs> Who decided that? Was that, uh, must be, was that Clive Barker? Yeah, it must be Clive Barker. And okay. uh, Pinhead's gash in the first movie consists of the iconic Chatterer, the uh-huh. Butterball and the imaginatively named female Cenobite. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> That's a great name for her. <laughs> so descriptive. Yeah. Uh, the Chatterer is the only one that really comes back a lot. Because uh, I think Chatterer was pretty iconic, too. Like, he kind of looks like yeah. one of those um, Silent Hill type creatures, you know? I, he, yeah. I mean, he looked like Nemesis. Dude, he went and shoved his fingers in Christie's mouth. <laughs> Never before have I seen like a, a slasher villain just like go up to the main character and just start like poking fingers into their mouth. <laughs> what a great thing. And then rubbing his teeth all over her cheek. <laughs> the actor who played the chatterer could not see or hear. <laughs> oh, that explains it. He was probably just trying to grab her throat. <laughs> he missed and got fingers in her mouth because the actress looked like oh jeez no i think he actually ended up like scraping the top of her mouth or something because he couldn't see so (laughs) he ended up like hurting her a little bit but uh, (laughs) a gash is ruled over first by a head cenobite which in pinhead's gash is pinhead and his gash always changes and in the first movie he was just called head cenobite he did not have a name (laughs) So. Okay, so he was always written as the head of yeah. His and group. in the first movie, okay. originally all the Cenobites were going to talk a lot more, but the Chatterer couldn't talk, and Butterball no. couldn't talk either. Nope. <laughs> so uh, only Pinhead talked, and the the female Cenobite talks too. So yeah, she talked a little. Bit. They got most of the lines, but then that gash is also ruled over by an engineer. And the engineer is this strange puppet monster that... Yeah, dude. Oh, that was the best part of the movie. They, I never expected that thing to come out and start chasing her down the hall on Chases Kirsty down the hall when she solves the box and briefly on goes... very into, clear, <laughs> obvious wheels with very clear, obvious people yeah, behind it You can pushing see it. the people pushing it. <laughs> Which I just... In my mind, in my head canon, they became, you know, Cenobite servants right. that were <laughs> pushing it around. <laughs> Uh, so the engineer is really the head of their gash, but uh, I guess Pinhead is kind of the field commander. Although in later movies, it really kind of more seems like Pinhead's the one in charge and they kind of drop the engineer thing. Is there ever another appearance of an engineer in any of the Hellraiser movies? No, you never see that specific puppet again. 
in Hellraiser 5 Inferno, which is actually probably the best one after two, it is about a detective looking for a guy named The Engineer, who's supposedly murdering a bunch of people. So they're at least referencing The Engineer. I assume in their hierarchy, after Engineer comes Leviathan. So let's talk a little bit about The Bum. Um, Because I think the bum is pretty cool. So the bum is from the first movie. So there's a guy who sells Uncle Frank this box. Because Uncle Frank was, he was actually on a quest to find like sensual experiences. And he Uh learned about this box. He finds this guy who says, what is your pleasure? And sells him the box. And then later we see this bum at the pet store where Kirsty works. Uh, just yeah. <laughs> eating he crickets. Just starts eating crickets. And <laughs> well, she's she... like, hey, put those back. <laughs> oh, yeah. But I think that she hasn't seen him <laughs> eating them at that eating point. Your crickets, just let him have Because the then crickets. she watches him eat them and she's pretty horrified. So I don't think she knew he was eating them. <laughs> One of the best scenes in the movie is just that rant. Like, and that's what, what I'm talking about when I say you can't predict this movie. You could never predict this bum's just going to wander into this pet shop and start eating crickets. <laughs> no, that was so weird. It was great. Um, well, and then at the end, you couldn't have predicted no, the bum was going to wander never, back to that bonfire ever predict- and just jump into the bonfire. Yeah, so like, let's talk about the ending scene. Fire. So the ending scene for Hellraiser 1, Kirsty tries to burn the box. Then this bum shows up. He walks into the fire, catches on fire, grabs the box, walks away, turns into a giant dragon that has horns instead of eyes. A giant bone dragon. <laughs> yeah. Like he's made of bones. And flies away. And like... You could never predict that was going to happen. And like, how important does that scene seem to you, Torvald, (laughs) for the overall? Not at all. (laughs) Right. (laughs) They filmed that scene after they had like run out of budget with at least the part with the dragon. Like they had no budget. They couldn't do that dragon. They managed to scrape together like 700 bucks to pay like a VFX guy to make the dragon. Like it was that important. They needed that dragon. (laughs) They needed the dragon. (laughs) It was that important to Clive Barker. Like it's creepy enough that the bum shows up and takes the box. No, but you needed Mm -hmm. that dragon. (laughs) No, him just walking away on fire would have still worked. (laughs) Yeah. That's a pretty creepy ending. (laughs) No, he has to turn into a bone dragon. So what? what is he? The, is he a demon? Yeah, is the he, bum is, is he an angel? Yeah, the bum is another type of demon called an Eremite. I don't know too much about Eremites, but I do know that they are born into the world as normal humans. And they are guardians of the puzzle box. And each one of them has a box and they say things like, what is your pleasure? And they give it to people. And that's basically their okay. job. And their true form is a weird looking bone dragon. We learn in Hellraiser 4 that the original Lament configuration was created by a man named Le Marchand, right? Le Marchand. I don't know. Yeah. Le Marchand. (laughs) A French guy named Le Marchand. So here's a question for you. Are there multiple Lament configurations in this world? Yes. Like in Hellraiser 2, Dr. Chouinard has lots of boxes. Are the ones that the doctor has just like replicas? Because they were never used. He never used them, right? He waited till he had the actual one to start doing stuff. So that made me think maybe there is only one. Yeah. In Hellraiser 8, Hellworld, there is a guy who has a lot of boxes, which he refers to as Le Marchand boxes. And they all look fairly similar. So in the omnibus, in the, the comic, 
rogue demon hunter Kirsty, 25 years after the events of uh, Hellraiser 1. She goes around with her group finding and destroying Lamarchand boxes. Um, And I'm not sure if all of them are created by Lamarchand. They destroy a carousel, a music box, like a doll, a snow globe. And all of these were gateways to hell. But in another one of the comics, there is a puzzle called the Tunnel of Love, and it's a maze of underground tunnels in Vietnam. And when navigated correctly, they lead to hell. Oh, that's cool. I like that. That one's actually an important little evidence because it shows that there can be puzzle boxes that that one wasn't created by La Marchand, right? It's in Vietnam. Right. And it's it's also also, not a Right. It's not a box. It's huge. (laughs) So in this world, there are puzzles sometimes boxes, sometimes created by Le Marchand, but not always, that can lead to hell, that can open up a, uh, a gateway to hell, basically. And I mean, even if they didn't show other puzzle boxes in the fourth movie, I think that it's supported by the fourth movie because Le Marchand did not design this box. Le Ile, the magician, designed it and commissioned it. Like, they're very clear. Le Marchand tells his wife, he's like, I built this box to specifications by Leila when she's not impressed by it, right? Like, yeah. he kind of blames on Leila. And he's like, I built this to his specifications. It doesn't so, do anything. I love that scene. He's like, am I the greatest toy maker in all of France? And she's like, oh, let me see how it works. And then it just slides up and slides down, which is what it always does in the movies. And she's like, oh, it doesn't do anything. And then he just looks at her with the saddest eyes and says... This is my masterpiece. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, that was so good. (laughs) But no, um, so Delila, we don't know too much about him, but he was the greatest magician in all of France. And he did real magic and also summoned demons. And he knew a demon summoning technique that involved a puzzle box. So he had Le Méchant make it for him. Yeah. So if that technique existed and could be assigned to some random toy maker then of course someone else could do it too, right? Mm-hmm. Like there was nothing special about the Méchant. My question for you then is if there are multiple boxes, does that mean that just random members of the Le- Méchant family just kept making them and just losing them or giving them to people? <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, it seems that way. Like in Hellraiser 4, John Merchant uh, yeah, in the present day. Yeah, accidentally created a lament configuration building. <laughs> exactly, uh, which is another important thing uh, that we're going to discuss is that accidentally John Merchant created an entire building that is a lament configuration. Kind of weird. Here's an interesting question. Of the, I don't know, three movies that were in Hellraiser 4, the one that's set yeah. in space, the one that's set in like 1800s or whatever, and the one that's set in the mm. modern day. Which one do you like the best? Dude, the space one. Yeah, obviously. I wish it had just been the space obviously. one. Obviously. And that <sighs> is a really good segue into Event Horizon. Let's talk about Event Horizon. Because that's the space one, right? That um, is the space <laughs> one. I agree. Rewatching it with open eyes, you know, like believing that it's a Hellraiser movie made it just so much more enjoyable. Yeah. I loved it. I and I think it it's great. already a fun really movie, good. you know, there are some people who really love this movie and like really remember it. 
you know, as like being like yeah. a really scary horror movie. Um, and yeah, no, maybe it's because they saw it when they were young, but that's not really the feel I got from it. People are like, I will never forget this movie, right? They're like, this, I, when I watch this movie, the images in this movie will stay with me until I die. And I was like, ooh, this must be like a really, really frightening movie. Yeah. I watched it. It's not, it's not. <laughs> and I think it could be because we've seen lots of movies since then that were like, you know, really gory, like in the Saw franchise or something like that. But maybe at the time in 1997, you've never seen a man claw his eyes out. You didn't even see him claw no, his eyes true. out. That was you my problem with it. it. Like if they had shown him pulling his eyeballs out of his sockets, I would have remembered that, right? Like even if it looked cheap and cheesy, I would have at least Which remembered it. Which it would have. But that's fine. I, I like cheesy horror. I, some people don't. I can dig it. I just, I don't get it. It felt like they were pulling their punches. But that actually fact is into a theory that I want to deliver after your theory, which has to do with the original cut of oh. Event Horizon. Well, and I was also thinking maybe it could be the scene where Justin goes out into space and starts bleeding, you know, from everywhere because he's getting depressurized. Like maybe that's what no, traumatized but, I mean, them. I, for me, when I watch that scene, I'm just like, oh, cool. A uh, space movie that actually, you know, does a semi-realistic uh, portrayal of decompressurization in space, right? Captain Miller does yell to Justin. He says, now release all the air from your lungs, right. blow out. And that right? I've heard and in that's different true. things. That's yeah. completely true. Now, the other part is that his eyes start bleeding and they say, shut your eyes, hold your hand over your eyes and curl up into a ball. I've also read that this is what you should do if you randomly get thrown out into space. Which like, curl into a ball why and is it hold your hands <laughs> over your right. eyes. And why is it that both you and I know this? Like, I know this too. I don't know. This is not something that happened. This isn't a survival <laughs> skill, right? I'm not sure. We're never getting Dude, thrown maybe, out into space. Maybe soon. We've got privatized <laughs> space companies now. Yeah. The Event Horizon is a really cool ship, right? And it looks yes. really weird. Like not how anyone in their right mind would ever design a ship, right? It's designed no. to look scary, right? In order yes. to get, so the gravity drive is a ball with three rotating rings around it in a room that is full of sharp points over a yes. sea of like shimmering blood water. And to get in there. <laughs> and to get in there, you, you have, have to, to walk through, through a, a giant pencil sharpener. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's pretty cool. The architecture within the ship is like straight, like gothic architecture. Like, you know, kind of like the Notre Dame Cathedral. Everything in the ship is like arches. Right. Like gothic arches. Usually, you know, these arches were around to like be huge load bearing structures, like for these big gothic churches that were just piles and piles of, you know, tons of stone. They'd need arches to hold all that up. But a spaceship doesn't necessarily need all that no. load bearing structure. <laughs> no. And architecture is a good key word because uh, Le Marchand, uh, while he was a toy maker, it's also canonical that he was an architect too in the comics especially he was an architect but like john merchant we know was also an architect right like he built this building right a person can be influenced to create some sort of large structure architecturally that is maybe a gateway to something right like john merchant or possibly dr weir who is the main character in in event horizon the lament configuration like it's got symbols on it it's golden it's cool looking 
And if you look at the gravity drive itself in the event horizon, like the whole thing is kind of yeah, gilded. Engraved. <laughs> yeah, and it has random engravings on it. Like it, it it's got sigils similar all over it. in it's creepy as in, heck. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's very similar to how the Lament configuration yeah. looks. Everything about that room looks nothing like scientific anything. No. <laughs> like that room <laughs> is not a scientific room. It's not an engine. It's not a machine. It is a ritual. <laughs> that right. room is a giant ritual <laughs> with a big spinning puzzle in the middle of it. Yeah. A puzzle which must solve itself to open a gateway. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I totally buy this theory. I'm not going to spend much time, <laughs> you know, trying to contradict <laughs> you here. I love it. Right. I think it fits it's just perfectly. Yeah, and like I said, uh, in later films, sometimes people just touch the box and it solves itself. Well, in this movie, when the kid Justin goes in, he just like touches that thing and like the gravity drive comes on and it kind of just solves itself and sucks him in, right? And they end up mm -hmm. pulling him out and he's like, you know, weird and traumatized for the rest of the movie. I just want to talk about Dr. Weir a bit more just to give some more credence to your theory that he was kind of, I don't know, like visited by demonic influences in his life. Mm -hmm. The very first scene with him in the movie, he wakes up and he was dreaming about floating and screaming on an abandoned spaceship, mm -hmm. right? He was dreaming about being on the event horizon before he even goes there, right? So I think this is interesting because he wasn't even in contact with the ship after it had been in hell. So why is he being haunted Right. Like there's no reason for that unless, like you said, he's already having demonic influences in his life. Yeah. Now, for some reason, waking up from this immediately makes him think of his dead wife and he grabs a picture of her. <laughs> And then yeah. he takes this picture of her and puts it in a shrine with all the yeah. other pictures no. of her. It's interesting to note, the very first thing we learn about Dr. Weir is that he always travels with 50 pictures of his wife. Something is off with this guy. Right. Like he is not right in the head. Yeah, <laughs> like no. he, Something's going on with him. For sure. And then on the way to the Event Horizon, once again, he has a premonition of the Event Horizon having been in hell. He sees his dead wife, Claire, naked and wet in the captain's chair. And then she turns to him and she's eyeless. And she says, I'm waiting. Like we know that you start to become influenced by the box after being in contact with the box or in close proximity to the box. Yeah, or the you open created the box. it. Right, so. this guy created it. So I think it makes sense that he would already be suffering from these things. But like in Event Horizon, once they get to the Event Horizon, other people start having these issues that... Dr. Weir is having where they see flashbacks to past like traumatic events that happened in their lives. At first glance, maybe it doesn't seem like this is a super Hellraiser thing, um, but I do think there's precedence for the Cenobites using past memories to torture you. Um, in Hellraiser 3, Pinhead becomes the main character. Her name is Joey, I think. He becomes her father um, and he takes her to the past. And I don't think okay. Joey even opened the box in this movie. But um, she is in possession of the box, though. Anyway, so there's precedence in Hellraiser 3 for Cenobites being able to become your loved ones and also give you flashbacks and give you hallucinations and things like that. Well, that fits into this movie pretty well. Yeah. And also in the later films, which I won't talk about much, five and six, people do experience a lot of flashbacks and hallucinations after being in close proximity to the box or touching the box and opening the box, obviously. Um, but it doesn't okay. always seem to be a requirement that you open the box. 
Sometimes the Cenobites kill indiscriminately to people who were never really all that related to the box, which is kind of mm -hmm. what happens in Event Horizon, right? Like people I are mean, dying and they weren't the ones. It's who also kind it. of exactly what happens in Hellraiser Four, right? <laughs> right? Like <Yeah. laughs> they, they open the box on a spaceship, and then a bunch of people show up after the box gets opened, and they all get killed. Right? They had nothing yeah. to do with this. It. Is part of my theory. I kind of think Event Horizon should be Hellraiser Four. <laughs> But no, um, it been a great Hellraiser 4. One important thing that Pinhead says in Hellraiser 2, he says, hands don't call us, desire calls us. Mm -hmm. Because Tiffany opens the box and they don't kill Tiffany, but they do get Shannard. Right. Now, Shannard thought he'd be safe because he was having other people open the box for him. That's the doctor. Yeah, Dr. Shenard. They do not get him. <laughs> he goes with, uh, with Julia and gets the honor of becoming the chosen Cenobite for the Leviathan. Yeah. Like he got everything he wanted. <laughs> yeah. And to think he faulted. <laughs> but once released, the Cenobites do seem to kill people who have some sort of desire, usually for pleasure or pain or power or something like that. I think the reason and they... Sometimes they kill people who have no desire for Well, I'm not... like killing. <laughs> yeah. I'm not 100% sure about that. Like, they don't kill Tiffany in Hellraiser 2. I think it's because she has no desire at all, period. Right? Like she's she's and just she misses her mom. Well, she misses her mom, but like she doesn't seem to want anything. She just saw the box because it was in her hands. She's doing it compulsively and that's it. So I think that victims of the box, people who summon the box, even sometimes people who make the boxes are people who are obsessed. And similarly, Weir is like 100% obsessed with the event horizon and the drive from the very beginning of this movie. Um, the first time yeah. he stares at it, it like reflects in his eye and he's just constantly sitting around like thinking about it. Yeah, it's his, it's his baby. He created it. Yeah. I just think that's important to note that uh, Dr. Weir is driven by obsession, which many of the other victims of the box were as well. And specifically yeah. people like Dr. Chouinard who became Cenobites. This takes place in 2047. That's like... Uh, 27 years from now. So yep. not so far away. <laughs> also, they still use CDs in 2047. <laughs> Just so hey, you know. Dude, CDs are so useful. <laughs> Um, I mean, dude, so that, that ship was built just, seven years before. It was built in 2040, so maybe they've come a long way in those seven years. I'm just saying, hold on to your CDs because, you know, they could come back in 27 years. I also thought that, like, Sam Neill and Lawrence Fishburne are great actors. And even in this, oh, yeah. I think they're pretty good. But I also felt like mm -hmm. in this movie, I've never seen them act quite this bad, even though they're not bad. Oh, but yeah. I'm just saying some of the lines they deliver just here and there are really like, oh, that wasn't the best line. And maybe it was just the writing. But but anyway, well, I love Lawrence I'll, Fishburne. I'll get into that with my theory. Um, there's there's some, some issues with the filming of this movie that I want to talk about. But we'll do that later. Just wanted to mention, so Weir, he built the gravity drive that produces... Uh, well, so he says... It allows the ship to go faster than light by creating a dimensional gateway that allows the ship to instantly jump from one point in the universe to another. So like he specifically says it creates a dimensional gateway. Gateway is the term that they always use for the lament configuration. They say that it's a gateway to hell. And then I, I just want to say, he, he says that the way it does it is the using whale tensor dynamics. It folds the space-time until the curvature becomes infinitely large and you produce a singularity. And then later, everyone gets mad at him because his drive creates a black hole. 
They're like, what? You create a black hole? He literally told him that. He yes. said, you produce a singularity. I'm like, guys, you're on a spaceship. <laughs> oh. You should know what a term like singularity means in an astronomical context. <laughs> like, they should know what it does. He was very clear about it. <laughs> well, and also they tell him to explain things in English Yes. And then he proceeds to explain in English and then they get mad at him for like yes. being too complicated when he really wasn't being that complicated. <laughs> no, he was just <laughs> explaining it. No, I, I mean, I think they're trying to paint this crew as kind of like an alien kind of crew. Like these are blue collar people. They're not here for the science. They're here to, you know, do scrap and rescue missions. That's all. Right. Yeah. So the Lamech configuration has no known source of power, but it does seem to have a lot of lightning in it. <laughs> for some reason. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> it does have a lot of lightning. <laughs> <laughs> now, in Event Horizon, after the kid opens the drive just by touching it, Weir argues that the gravity drive couldn't open because the power wasn't on, which is a good argument. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a great <laughs> argument. <laughs> no, I mean, I actually loved his argument for that. Like, everything he was saying... He made perfect sense. He was like, this ship cannot be turning on its gravity drive. And everyone's like, you're wrong, stupid scientist. Go away. Right. And that <laughs> is something I like about this movie is perhaps to some extent it's told from Weir's perspective. But like, <laughs> yeah, I was thinking that while I watched it. <laughs> but like everything he says is just very, very reasonable and rational. And he's like, and they treat him like, an idiot. yeah, and they're they just constantly like, like hey, hey, you, <laughs> you know, and he's like, guys, we were sent here to do a mission. We can't leave. And Lawrence Fisher's like, we're leaving. <laughs> we just spent Ooh, like, I actually have to, I got to contest you on that. So when Captain Miller at that point in the movie, he says, we're done. We can't save the crew. They're dead. Let's go back and abort this mission. And Weir refuses what on earth does he think they're going to do there? They can't fly the Event Horizon back. It's out of oxygen. <laughs> does he just want them to sit there and die? Like, what is Weir expecting at that point? They have to go back. <laughs> uh, so, because we were talking about how they were getting mad at him because of the black hole. just So, around that part in the movie, Captain Miller asks, what's in the core, Doctor? And Weir says, it's complicated. And then he deliberately avoids saying what's in there. In the next scene, they're like, a black hole? Like, it seems like the core contains a black hole. Yeah, it does. And so that's important because in Hellraiser 4 Bloodline, John Merchant is trying to invent a box that has perpetual light. And he wants to do it uh -huh. by capturing light within it. What else captures yeah. light? Black holes. A black hole. <laughs> wow. But he wants the light to, like, stay. Right. Not to be right, right, sucked right, right. into blackness. But, like, I'm just saying, like there are similarities with what these two men no, were trying to accomplish. I agree. And you could say the um, Elysium configuration generates light and the Lament configuration eats light. Yeah. And what eats light? A black hole. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So like you that, could say maybe all the Marchand boxes contain some form of black hole and maybe the Elysium yeah. configuration contained a sun. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> sure. Why not? The space station that they're in, in Hellraiser 4 is a giant lament configuration. Yeah. Hey, Torvald, which movie do you think this quote is from? There's something in this station right now that wants our souls, and whether you believe in hell or not, it's going to take us there. Oh, dude, that sounds like a quote from Event Horizon. <laughs> but it's not. It's from Hellraiser what? 4. 
What? Oh my gosh, dude! You just proved your theory. <laughs> but no, yeah, that's pretty good. I mean, that quote could—it would not be out of place in either movie. It would fit perfectly in either movie. But yeah, at the end of Hellraiser Four, the space station literally folds up into a box, a lament configuration. Yes, and mm -hmm. uh, the entire premise of Event Horizon is that they keep saying the ship is alive. The ship, you know, it, it like it wants us here that kind of thing um like the whole ship has become some sort of gateway to hell you're establishing the precedent that ships can be limit configurations yes large things can be limit configurations even buildings as we also saw in hellraiser yes, 4. yes so in hellraiser 4 we've got the minos which is a space station limit or it's a elysium configuration it was built in 2127 mm -hmm. event horizon they built in 2040. Yeah. That's like a hundred years before. Mm -hmm. So you're telling me that Lament Configuration spaceships have been being constructed for like a hundred years? Well, at least two. Everybody seems pretty surprised and unnerved by everything Mr. Merchant is doing right. in in hellraiser 4 well, like whatever he's doing seems very out of the ordinary <laughs> but the event horizon was never recovered right right but if they if they had the ability to make a ship that can open up a gateway and travel light years in an instant they would keep doing it like nothing would stop them from doing it again right uh i don't know i mean like if the only people who came back were stark and cooper being like no don't do it again uh, maybe not you know like they've had nothing but failures like they they lost everyone on that ship and they lost almost everyone they went out they sent out to get that ship so you're saying these survivors came back and convinced everyone it didn't work ship didn't go anywhere yeah <laughs> like that's what you're saying yeah well also they lost dr weir too who seemed to be like the driving force like because he's so obsessed with this all right all right because of what happened with the event horizon that creating spaceships space stations with drives that harness and capture light or black holes was outlawed and maybe that's why those commandos come in and attack the guy on the Minos space station, because that's what he's trying to do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that could be part of it, but I'm pretty sure they made it pretty clear that they were there because he commandeered the spaceship. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I mean, they could be part of it. That's interesting. That movie ends with them killing Pinhead and all the Cenobites and sealing the gateway to hell. Yeah. And that's canonically the end. Right. Like, that's it. Yep. That's the last of Pinhead. That's <laughs> Nothing true. Nothing else ever happens. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was kind of cool that, like, now we know how he started yeah. and how he ended. The... And we can have hundreds of years of stories in between. Right. <laughs> the Marchand wins in the end. <laughs> he does. He wins. And also, that was a weird ending for a horror movie. Yeah. <laughs> like, usually there's something. Like, I expected them to be flying away and then hooks to come out from the ceiling and then cut to credits. Yeah, and they really missed their opportunity to have like a spaceship chasing another spaceship and hooks come out of the spaceship behind and pull the other spaceship oh toward gosh. it. Oh my gosh. Dude, they did miss that opportunity. I didn't even Man, you should have you should have written this movie. That would've been great. So Cenobites very greatly, but all have generally been tortured and in Event Horizon most of the crew is taken and tortured, and some of them are turned into Cenobites, and some of them are not. Yeah. And this is something that happens in Hellraiser. Sometimes you get turned into a Cenobite, sometimes you just get tortured and killed. Yes. So the original crew 
it seems that Captain Kilpack became one of the Cenobites, or at least he looks kind of like one. And then later on, Dr. Weir becomes a Cenobite. So first he claws out his eyes, but that's not when he becomes a yes. Cenobite. Later he comes no, back, I agree. he's got his eyes back, and he's just got these very Cenobite-like scars lining his body in a, like a grid pattern all over kind of thing. Weir, he was sucked out the window which means that he ended up on Neptune, right? Like, he's gone. There's no possible way he could have come back. Yeah. And then he comes back. And like you said, his eyes are back. And also his skin's all carved up. He looks like Pinhead, but without the pins, right? Yeah. He says, the ship brought me back. I told you she won't let me leave. She won't let anyone leave. Right. Now, I think there's two options here. Either Miller is just hallucinating, right? The ship's making him hallucinate that Weir came back. Or the ship turned Weir into a Cenobite. Right. Which I think fits because his skin also looks a little gray or bluish, right? Yeah. Like, also, most, but not all, Cenobites lose their hair in the process of becoming a Cenobite. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he lost he his He definitely hair, loses dude. his hair. After becoming a Cenobite, what you seek to do is take more souls, which, of course, uh -huh. is exactly what Weir does trying to kill the yeah. rest of the crew. Before becoming a Cenobite, Weir hallucinates his wife one more time the last time he enters the core, and she says, you never have to be alone again. You're with me. I have such wonderful things to show you. Which sounds a lot like Pinhead saying, we have such sights to show you. And then Weir digs out his own eyes. So I guess he didn't want to see those things. <laughs> well, also, <laughs> but when his wife says that, she also has no eyes. So, right, right. <laughs> I don't Maybe know. he thinks you can only see them with no eyes. Also... After Justin is pulled into the portal, at the, right when they get to the event horizon, he says, it shows you things, horrible things. Oh, yeah, dude. That's what, that's what Xenobites love yep. to do. <laughs> Pinhead just wants to show you things. I mean, of course, no, from Justin's good. point of view, they're horrible things. But, you know, to like Dr. Weir or any other Xenobite. Well, to Pinhead, he thinks they're yeah, great. Yeah, they're great. <laughs> they're lollipops, lollipops. right? <laughs> These are what he likes. He's handing out cool. torture and lollipops, and I'm all out of torture but the torture is lollipops <laughs> well yeah to him the torture is a good thing <laughs> but you said that weir is not a cenobite until he comes back from neptune and i kind of felt like from the moment where his wife says she's going to show him wonderful wonderful things i thought he was started transitioning into being a cenobite yeah. at that point because then he goes and finds the doctor uh, mr trauma and he vivisects him and hangs him up by hooks on wires, which is very, very Cenobite-like yeah, behavior, <laughs> right? Like that's exactly what a Cenobite would do. Yeah. I think that Dr. Weir is a good example of probably one of the only people in the whole Hellraiser series, if we take this to be part of the Hellraiser series, who actually does see them as angels, you know? <laughs> this is pleasure yeah. and paradise to him. Um, there you so go. you know this is that a happy end to the story <laughs> i mean for him <laughs> when he's showing miller they're in the core and he's a cenobite now he like touches miller and gives him some visions of hell their visions consist almost entirely of the crew strapped to things with barbed wires <laughs> which also is very cenobite-ish yeah so stark at the very end she gets back with cooper she did not ever see Weir in his final Dude, form. I was going to say this too. <laughs> so her hallucination <laughs> at the end 
can't just be a hallucination, right? No. Something came with them, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of that what happens weird. when you're he in close proximity them. to the box. Sometimes it continues haunting you even after you've sort of left it. Yes. The gateway opened, meaning there was a black hole in that ship. And then Miller just blew it up. <laughs> like, would this not just put a black yeah. hole in the middle of our solar system? <laughs> like, like I, I think Miller could have just killed everybody. Right. Possibly everyone in the universe, depending on how populated other solar systems are, right? <laughs> so this is kind of getting into my theory that I'm going to lay on you in a minute. But um, every member of the crew was tortured in ways specific to their deepest fears and failings. Mm -hmm. Miller needed to lose his crew because that was his biggest fear and failing, right? Okay. Like it had to happen. Yeah. Um, and then other crew members, you don't really get into this because a lot of it was cut. <laughs> um, but like the, the one lady whose name I can't remember, her Peters? biggest fear and failing was that she, she wasn't there for her son who had, he, like his legs didn't work right. So she kept seeing him running away from her or having his legs messed up. Cooper, his biggest fear was also kind of like the captain's fear. It was just losing somebody he cared about. And that was supposed to really get to him when he lost Justin, um, even though the captain saved Justin. But he, he really didn't like that, that he couldn't get Justin out of the black hole before Justin fell into a coma. I guess I didn't remember Cooper being particularly bothered by what happened to Justin. he wasn't that's <laughs> that got cut out so now i'm talking about oh, okay. stuff that got cut out of the movie okay. <laughs> um, and then uh, the the doctor dude um you actually see this in the movie but you don't know why he as a child was had some really really bad traumatizing surgery where they had to open up his chest dj trauma and had now, bad trauma yes yes <laughs> dj trauma had big big trauma and now he is deathly afraid of getting cut he's afraid of knives which is okay. why he picks up a scalpel yeah. and holds it to the other well, guy's throat and this is because that's his greatest fear and this is why <laughs> dj trauma is my favorite character because like Dude, dj trauma is intense <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> i mean he just grabs smith and just puts a scalpel right up to his throat like and this is when they're all on the same Everyone team else and in the room was kind of like yeah okay with it <laughs> but like they're all on the same team and like they're all kind of against dr weir but no he goes for yep. smith and holds a yep. scalpel to his throat <laughs> So that was kind of his sin was that he was super afraid of knives, but then he went ahead and held a knife to someone else's throat and then he paid for it by getting cut up like he got vivisected, which is what he was most afraid of. Yeah. I have a few more questions related more to your theory, but not really. Like these are just random musings. Okay. One thing, the rules of magic, which we learned in Hellraiser 4. <laughs> Number one, a summoned demon is yours to command. Okay. Number two, unless you stand in hell's way. <laughs> Those are the rules of magic. <laughs> Seems so, like there's some ro room to bend there. Yes. So um, the assistant, he kills Mr. Leile. Then the assistant and Angelique, they live together for 200 years until finally she's able to break free just by asking if they can go to, I think it's San Francisco. And then he says, no. And then he's standing in hell's way. <laughs> so she just kills him. And I'm like, does this mean that a summoned demon could just ask, can I kill you? And then always be able to kill their master? <laughs> because no matter what, if you say yes, they kill you. If you say no, they kill you because you're standing in their way. <laughs> like, 
seems like I've, I've figured out the trick Maybe. to how a summoned demon is not always yours yeah. to command. <laughs> well, if so, you're far smarter than Angelique was. It took her 200 years to figure that out. She didn't even figure it out. She just happened to finally ask something that he said no to. <laughs> okay. At the end of Hellraiser 2, when the Leviathan is shut down after they solve the Lament configuration, uh, it shoots out bursts of energy. I don't know if you remember this, but there's like light balls that start shooting out of it. And they don't just shoot out of it into the labyrinth. They shoot out into the real world. Do you think this could be, and I actually have to credit uh, a guy called Mr. H from Mr. H Reviews for this. His theory is that the Leviathan was getting shut down and this was it kind of calling out to try and create a new Leviathan or to reactivate itself. And he thought that perhaps these bursts of energy could have somehow either traveled to Dr. Weir or to the Event Horizon to turn it into a new Leviathan. And that the Event Horizon was becoming the next Leviathan throughout the Event Horizon movie. Do you think there's any credence to any of that? Because we know that the Leviathan is an inanimate object that is alive. Yeah. That's what the Event Horizon is, right? There's a lot of weird stuff in Hellraiser 2. Yeah. So it's hard to <laughs> necessarily a ascribe a lot of general. meaning to many of the bizarre things that happen there. But sure, I mean, anything is possible. Uh, I do think it's interesting, though. I just thought of this, that like the Leviathan has black light. Maybe it's yeah. a black hole. Except black holes don't emit, they don't emit black light. Well, they do emit <laughs> invisible light waves, right? That we can't see with the I human mean, eye. Maybe it's kind of like black They hole. also <laughs> emit visible light waves in some cases. I, I just thought it was an interesting idea that the event horizon was becoming the next Leviathan. I thought that was cool. I mean... It, it could be a big giant shape that that goes and says God over and over. I mean, what do ships communicate in? Morse code. Yeah, well, Morse code, dude. I mean, that could maybe the original Leviathan was a ship, yeah. like an, an ocean liner. It could be. And it had a foghorn. <laughs> hey, maybe there's something to that. That's interesting. Yeah. Another thought I had while watching this, a lament configuration, it can be a puzzle or it could be an actual maze. I'm wondering, could a lament configuration be digital? Could we have like a program or a virus or maybe a phishing email that when you read it solves the puzzle? <laughs> so you could like maliciously send a lament configuration <laughs> to someone. Ooh, <laughs> like, this this yeah. is going to be the next Hellraiser movie. In Hellraiser 8, Hellworld. Yeah, well, I was hoping you'd bring that up because I, I haven't seen this one. I don't know how it worked in that one. Interestingly enough, even though Pinhead is often grouped together with a lot of the iconic slashers, he's not really much of a slasher, at least for his first no. several movies. But Hellworld is just a slasher. The bunch of kids play a game called Hellworld. And unfortunately, this movie was made by people who had never played and didn't know what video games were. I've <laughs> <You laughs> never know? seen a video game. So like you only get like two oh, shots no. of the game they're playing. And it's just like this 2D image of just like a box. And they just kind of like click on it and rotate oh, it. No. And like, you don't really even see what they're doing. It shows their faces. So you can't even see the screen anymore. And they're like, no, you got to finesse it. You, you know, you like the, some guys giving this, this lady like uh, uh, advice as she's playing the game. Dude, I can't tell you how many times I've been coaching someone at a game and I told them to finesse it. <laughs> right. 
one of the main characters in Hellworld is... Is it Henry Cavill? Yeah, Henry Cavill. <laughs> what? I guessed it? Yes. <laughs> oh, new, my gosh. The new Superman. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe it. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Dude, he's also a total nerd. No, like he, he does play video plays video games. Video yeah. games. <laughs> Yeah. He really should have told them that their movie sucked. But anyway, or at least wasn't accurate. I mean, he was probably not much of an actor no, back then. So I doubt he wanted to He speak didn't really up. have any clout. <laughs> so I went and watched Hellworld kind of before I watched any others. Because like from the synopsis, it's like, whoa, this is like people get like Spy Kids 3D. Like they get pulled into a video game. But it's like Pinhead's Hellworld video game. I'm like, wow. But unfortunately, that's not what happens. You solve this dumb puzzle on what looks like just a 2D game that might even be a web page. But they act like it's a game they all play. And it's so fun. But I don't understand how it could be. And then no, it gives it you an invitation be. to this house that's having a party called Hellworld. And then they go to this house and they end up you know getting killed so did playing that game did that bring the xenobites it's like did they physically solve a puzzle in that movie because if not yeah digital so they do physically solve a puzzle in that movie because the guy they go to has a lot of puzzle boxes at at his house the, the guy who owns this house is this really creepy weird guy but he's played by uh bishop from the alien aliens you know Lance Henriksen is the actor who plays Bishop and this guy. Anyway, it's revealed that he had like a vendetta against these kids. And when they arrived, he drugged all of them and then he buried them alive underground. And, um, oh. like, well, that was unexpected. <laughs> the girl who, who, who died because like drills were going into her neck. She actually died because while she was hallucinating, she clawed her neck so bad that she bled to death, right? Okay. And the guy who died because he was decapitated, actually he died because while he was underground, he had an asthma attack and he suffocated. And then... Henry Cavill's death is the best because <laughs> their only explanation for him is, and that guy, well, he died just because of straight up fear or something like that. Like he, he just died because he was scared. <laughs> so when they interacted after going to this party, they were somehow like psychically communicating with each other. I don't know. The movie doesn't make any sense and it's not good. This is weird. <laughs> and then, so there, there were actually no Cenobites in this movie. It was all a hallucination. Right. So Pinhead does appear from time to time, but apparently it was all hallucination. Except that when huh. Bishop Lance Henriksen leaves after having buried all these kids alive, he has his puzzle box with him. And I think for some reason he solves it. And then the Cenobites come oh, and no. take him. I don't know. I, I wasn't watching this movie that closely because I didn't really like it that much. Um, what a weird movie. Yeah, no, it, it was very odd. All right. Well, I mean, I think if Lament Configuration can be a physical puzzle, I think it could be a digital puzzle. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Uh, like, and that's what we're saying here, right? With the event horizon, like you can be inspired to create these doorways to hell and they might not be boxes always, you know? So yeah, I think they can be digital. Whoa. So next time you get a fishy email or text message, you be careful. Well, I mean, if the subject line is, we have such sites to show you, don't <laughs> click. Oh no, <laughs> don't do it. Don't do it. Okay, last thing I'll ask you is just about Hellraiser in general. So we're saying that Event Horizon can be in the Hellraiser universe as far as we're concerned, right. just because it shares some similarities. Mm -hmm. What about ripoffs and parodies like 
Cabin in the Woods right. has a guy named Fornicus, <laughs> Lord of Bondage and Pain. <laughs> and he's got blades in his head and a puzzle ball. Yeah. He's clearly supposed to be Pinhead, yeah. right? But I'm, I'm just wondering, does that make Cabin in the Woods and everything else that's ever parodied it in the Hellraiser universe? Like, was Fornicus a Cenobite? Because he's got to be by that logic, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I'm, th- I'm glad you asked that question because, uh, well, in the case of Cabin in the Woods, I think you can explain it away with like, oh, it's just a parody. You know, it's it's like a postmodern kind of deconstruction of horror films. But it's a good question because like, where's the real evidence that connects these two movies? Like we've pointed out a lot of similarities between them, but like. You yeah. could say there's lots of similarities in tons of different horror movies. Like even right. you could say Freddy Krueger's a Cenobite, right. right? Like yeah. as he burned to death, it was because he solved yeah. element configuration and became a Cenobite. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah, you could so say that. Or even in a movie like The Avengers, you could say the Tesseract is a puzzle box, right? <laughs> Loki's a Cenobite. <laughs> uh, or in a game like The Evil Within. You could say that the brain device that takes oh, your main character right, to another hey. world, that's actually someone created, you know, uh, a, a digital a lament, lament configuration. configuration and that's that why all the people in there look like Xenobites, right? So there are countless movies inspired by Hellraiser. And why does Event Horizon get this special treatment? Like, what's the smoking gun? Yeah. The, why should we include it in the franchise? The evidence, what? yeah, that can really connects it. So here it is, and it's not huge or anything like that, but I have read from multiple sources. Clive Barker consulted on Event Horizons in the early stages of the movie. And so oh. if saying like Clive Barker, like Clive Barker wasn't even necessarily the writer of Hellraiser 2, right? Like he was a producer, he consulted on it, right? There are many things mm-hmm. in this franchise that are part of it because Clive Barker was part of it, but not even in necessarily a direct way. So I think that like Clive Barker didn't consult on Cabin in the Woods, right? He didn't consult on The Evil Within or The Avengers, right? But he consulted on Event Horizon. I think that's the clear connection, the cement, you know, that that, uh, makes this part of the Hellraiser franchise. Okay, so we're saying if Clive Barker had a hand in it, then it can be official. Then it can be canon. Yeah, I think that that compared with all the other similarities that we've already discussed kind of creates this uh, cohesive theory that connects it all together. I I think I've got to give it to you there because uh, if he actually did (laughs) consult on Event Horizon, because I don't think he was credited, but if he did, then that does set it apart from any other thing that could possibly be linked to Hellraiser. Yeah. That's cool. So, and just sort of uh, like wrapping up my theory, the reason I like this theory is because it elevates Event Horizon from a high-budget B-movie to possibly the best Hellraiser sequel in the series, you know? Oh, yeah. (laughs) And definitely the best in space sequel of any horror franchise, right? Um, And so it elevates Event Horizon by making it part of a greater lore rather than just a random space horror. And it elevates Hellraiser by adding a better sequel than most of the sequels have been, right? It's just really interesting to me that Hellraiser 4 came out in 1996. Event Horizon came out in 1997. (laughs) They're one year apart. And Event Horizon... The quality compared to Hellraiser 4 is just <laughs> off the charts. Like, yeah. it, it, I felt like I entered a different universe watching Hellraiser 4 followed by Event Horizon. <laughs> like, 
Oh man, and it's I really I don't mean to disparage Hellraiser, but um yeah, their props and sets and stuff are are not the most convincing sometimes. No. <laughs> but Event Horizons are just top notch. Like you, that spaceship looks real. <laughs> it looks like a real ship while they're on it. Yeah. So I don't know. I just I wonder how this movie that came out of nowhere versus this other movie from an established franchise the movie that came out of nowhere could have been so much more of a worthy sequel. Yeah. <laughs> like how'd that happen? <sighs> but no, I, I love this theory. I think, uh, I think it really makes event horizon into a great movie. It turns it from just, Oh, that's a fun space horror to This is a fantastic Hellraiser sequel. Um, it fixes all the things that I didn't like about Event Horizon and it takes the things I did like and it enhances them, right? Like it gives reason to Dr. Weir going insane. It gives reason to him coming back. It gives reason to like one of the things I was wondering while I was watching it the first time is, okay, say the ship did become sentient and it did go to hell. What's it trying to do now? Like, what does it want? <laughs> Why does it care if these people die or not? It wants to do that because... You know, Cenobites like to torture people. They think it's pleasure, right? This ship is getting off on this, right? <laughs> right? No, I, I, I think, like I said, it just it straight up enhances the movie. It makes it better. It makes it more fun. And it makes me wish that Pinhead had showed up at the end. That would have been cool. Yeah. Real quick, I want to I wanna throw at you my own theory about Event Horizon. Okay. A lot of people who love Event Horizon will actually know about this. Originally, there was a version of the movie known only as the hell cut okay it was event horizon the hell cut it included just massive amounts of stomach churning blood guts violence it was so unsettling that the studio had them axe over 30 minutes off of the movie and bury the original cut far away sealed in a transylvanian salt mine <laughs> they're like get rid of this put it underground well why Transylvania? <laughs> I don't know. So, and this is true. That's what happened to the original cut of this movie. The studios, they said, take it all away, bury it, get rid of it. When they went back later to retrieve the hell cut for like special editions and stuff. Only one of them came it, back. <laughs> I mean, I wish. No, it was, it was nowhere to be found. Like they couldn't retrieve it. Reports differ on this. Either it had deteriorated too much or it had somehow been misplaced or thrown away. But my theory is that... The canister <laughs> containing the film was a lament configuration? Yes. No, I mean, the, my theory is that the original Hell cut was demonic. It was actually filmed in Hell. And the cave that they buried it in became a portal to Hell and reclaimed its own footage. <laughs> That's my theory. So, um... I actually have a substantial amount of evidence for this, so don't brush it off too quick. Okay. I love this theory. All right, all right. Jeremy Bolt, he was the producer of this movie, so he worked very closely with Anderson. He says that the original cut included a literal orgy of sex and violence. Okay. In the movie, they see some footage of the original crew of the Event Horizon yeah. like going crazy mm -hmm. and killing each other. Yep. This is the sequence that added the most time to the movie. Okay. <laughs> this, that sequence. That scene was, I counted it, like 12 I was seconds, say 10 seconds in the final cut. <laughs> it was, it was all, just a little over 10 seconds. And yet somehow, Jeremy Bolt, he says that sequence took a month of prep and a week to film 
It included many grotesque gags, and he says we used amputees and porn stars to make it happen. So Paul W.S. Anderson, he says that the hell footage was shot on weekends and that it probably wasn't closely inspected by the Paramount executives. Uh, He said, and I quote, what happened is I would shoot with the main unit on the weeks and I would shoot the weekends with what we called a reduced unit. Um, He says, I think because it was reduced unit footage, the studio never bothered watching it because they thought, oh, it's just inserts of buttons being pressed or something like that. But it was actually all of the hell footage. Now, I think this is weird. (laughs) So Dr. Weird. a month, a whole month to prep for one scene. This is just something that turned on on one of the view screens randomly. He filmed this scene for a week. He didn't include any of the regulars in this. Mm-hmm. He had a separate crew just for this scene of the movie. And they worked on separate days of the week from everyone else. Maybe you can give me some insight. Like, is it normal for one little scene in the movie to get a month of prep and a week of filming? Because that sounds overkill to me. No, that's not normal. <laughs> no, that's so <laughs> weird, right? Like, for 10 seconds of footage? <laughs> what? But like, okay, so if he was using, like, basically an alternate crew and alternate actors, yes. and if the studio thought that it was just inserts anyway, feasibly, he could get away with it with a very small budget, and so then they wouldn't know that he was essentially wasting their budget on a week of footage they weren't going to use. Right, but that sure sounds secrative, right? Like, it sure sounds shady <laughs> well, and weird, obviously right? shady and weird. You said he got a totally different crew. Like, that's weird. Yes. I, you're either doing that because you're, so you're trying to keep a secret, or you're doing that because it didn't really happen, and you're just trying to build up some sort of lore <laughs> story about your movie. Exactly, yes. <laughs> like, nobody who worked on this scene can apparently be, like, contacted or talk about it because we don't know who they are. They're secret people, right? I just think... I think it's really, really strange. Most of the quotes I'm going to give you came from a 2011 Q&A with uh, Anderson and Bolt. So he said this scene contained endless amounts of orgies, blood, (laughs) intestines. He said there was a real beauty to it, even though it was very disturbing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which to me sounds like something, I don't know, Pinhead might say (laughs) about a sexual bloody orgy. (laughs) But anyway, when the studio watched the hell cut... They were disgusted uh-huh. and shocked at the revolting hellish monstrosity that their director had just brought them. And according to both Anderson and Bolt, they both confirmed this, multiple members of the audience were literally fainting during the screening just from the sheer guttural revulsion that they felt. And it was at that point that the studio demanded that this film be recut and that they bury the original (laughs) cut. They bury it literally in a salt mine. (laughs) I mean, everything about this sounds like a story you tell to like just hype up your cult classic. (laughs) Well, I mean, I know that there are other odd stories. Like there's a movie called, I, I think it's called I Know What You Did. It's like a 60s movie where like their viral marketing for this thing back in the day was like they had installed car seat belts in the theaters because it was so scary you would fall out of Whoa. your seat. <laughs> <laughs> that's <laughs> kind of sounds really like that. Good. It also kind of sounds like there are similar kind of weird stories that sound like BS to me of uh, uh the exorcist people saying like the the film was literally cursed and you know like mysterious disappearances of people who saw the original film like there are just lots of stories about the movie the exorcist and like 
you watch that movie, it's not even scary, right? Like, <laughs> but like at the time when it came out, it was like people were really disturbed by it, you know, and they made up but all the these... keywords here are when it came out. <laughs> this is not when Event Horizon came out. Yeah. Like the studio seemed to not like it and they seemed to downplay the horror of it. Like that's the whole reason for the new cut. I will say that as someone who was a film archivist, storing films in a cave is not uncommon. That is actually a good place to store films in a lot of cases, if it's cool and dry. Uh, and yeah, so yeah, yeah. a lot of archives are actually in caves. As an archivist, is it, not, is it uncommon for once a film has been archived and stored purposefully in a cave for you to go back for it and not be able to find it? <laughs> like, yeah. Well, that seems like the weirdest part to me is that it's either gone or deteriorated or thrown away. Like every time they tell the story, a different thing happened to it. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> things do happen in archives and sometimes items are lost. So that's not necessarily uncommon. I would say maybe this is an exaggerated story or perhaps the two people talking about it don't exactly know what happened. And maybe they just heard like, oh, yeah, they put it in the cave, you know, when maybe this company has like an archive that is in a cave, right? But they didn't know that. Yeah. So like, oh, they had to bury it in a cave, you know? Um, maybe okay. it wasn't buried. Or uh, the other explanation is if this studio, for whatever reason, did give the order to bury it in a cave in Transylvania, <laughs> which would be yes. very expensive for this studio when they could just burn it or something. Um, mm. Maybe the guy <laughs> who was supposed to do that was just like, I'm not doing that. And so when they went to go get it, it wasn't there because he never it. put it there. Because <laughs> who would go and right. do that? <laughs> Could be. Okay, but I'm not, I'm not done here. I got more to talk about. All right. <laughs> I don't know. You can't debunk this theory yet. So, um, it wasn't like Anderson and Bolt were biting at the reins to talk about it. They kind of had to be probed and it kind of seemed like they were a little ashamed, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Like Anderson seemed to have felt bad that he produced something this gutturally offensive. Like, no, it, it sounds like there was a literal week-long orgy. <laughs> um, so from the 2011 Q&A, Anderson said, actors would often say that they didn't like coming into work and that they felt unsettled just walking onto the set. And this, he didn't seem to want to talk about. The, the most he would go into it was just that since the movie had to do with people paying for their sins, and since a lot of the actors in the movie were experiencing kind of similar life situations, like I guess the lady who was letting down her son by not going to the birthday party was like actually letting down her son by not going to his birthday or something in real life because he needed to film so he said that a lot of the actors were having like just emotionally not happy to be there and that could explain some of the hiccups in their performances maybe they just really didn't want to be there right okay jolie richardson who played stark in a completely separate interview um, she has made it clear that she didn't enjoy filming this movie on separate occasions and for this interview she described the experience as cursed and she literally cursed, which is what I'm getting at here. Mm -hmm. And she, she shared some horror stories, the most notable one involving explosions and memory loss, something that happens a lot with uh, possessions and cursed uh, scenarios. Okay. So she says, there was this one scene with Sam Neill and me at the console. We were meant to be typing away. And then on the count of three, there'd be a fake explosion and we'd throw ourselves back off our chairs. When Sam and I did the scene for real, there was the count of three, and then neither of us remember what happened next. Okay. The explosion went off, 
and we woke up a few moments later on the floor. That happened every single time. (laughs) (laughs) Those are her words. Well, why didn't they say something? (laughs) I don't know. But that sounds very, very weird That doesn't make any sense. You would be like, hey, I think we need to go see a doctor. That explosion must have been bigger than we thought it would be. I don't know, but uh, apparently, <laughs> I mean, I don't think it was the explosion. I think they were getting possessed or something. I think, uh, <laughs> I think the powers of hell were invading this set. Jimmy Bolt said twice, not once, but twice during the uh, Q&A, he said, we figured if you're going to hell, you've really got to do it. You can't tap dance around it. Like everything else they were saying, I think he meant it literally. So now I'll talk a little bit about the recovery of of this uh, hell cut. Um, So they went to get the original. It was found that most of the footage is, quote unquote, gone forever. (laughs) It's been thrown away or deteriorated or missing. I've seen all three of those explanations. Now, in a 2012 interview, Anderson announced that producer Lloyd Levin had found a VHS tape with the original rough cut. Anderson said that after finishing Resident Evil Retribution, he planned to watch it for the first time since assembling the film. More recently, in a January 2017 interview, Anderson reiterated that a director's cut will never be released as the footage does not exist. (laughs) He says there is no footage. And then they brought it up. They asked him about the VHS tape and he said that neither he nor Levin had watched it yet. He says Levin moved to Spain, and but but he's still excited about watching it at some point. Now I I say that this VHS tape is some sort of cursed object of power, which maybe still has that you know a gateway to hell inside of it, and yeah. maybe it's some kind of lament configuration, mm. or you know maybe like the ring, right. the video, right? I, I think that they fear the hell cut, but also they love the hell cut. <laughs> I think maybe it's. Pleasure for some and pain for others. Could be. But, you know, when, whenever, whenever they do decide to, uh, to release a special edition, I think they'll have such sights to show us. <laughs> that should be what's trending. Who cares about the Snyder Cut? You know, release the Hell Cut, I know. man. <laughs> well, that's what, uh, that's what Event Horizon fans have been clamoring for. They want the Hell Cut. So anyway, that's, that's my favorite Event Horizon theory besides your Hellraiser crossover theory. I, I fully want to believe that the uh, writer-director assembled an alternate crew and took them to hell and they never came back. And that's why we've never heard from them. <laughs> and the footage will never be seen again. <laughs> or will it? Uh, that's, a, that's an interesting theory. I, I will be interested to see the hell cut when <laughs> I hope it, it ever releases. Thank you guys for listening to the Popcorn Isn't Real. Uh, I hope you enjoyed uh, hearing a lot about Event Horizon and Hellraiser uh, and our th- uh, the, and this theory that we discussed. Either Event Horizon is a fun little 90s space horror or it's one of the best Hellraiser sequels there is. Uh, and you decide which one you want to believe. Or... It was filmed on location in hell, and the footage was sealed in a cave and returned to its master below. Um, so yeah, you decide. What, what, what do you want to believe? And on that note, we leave you. I am Leif Eric, and I'm here with my brother Torvald, and we will see you next time. See you later. Opening music for this episode was provided by Christine. And if you like our podcast, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. And remember, 
the popcorn isn't real.